Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of New York Update. Uh, this is going to be the third episode. We are a podcast of news and information centering on education issues to give you the update of the last week since we uh, last interviewed Julie Goldberg, candidate for state senate. A couple of things happened. A lawsuit has been filed. The uh, The lawsuit pertains to the yeshiva issue. We spoke about the whistleblower organization that is saying that yeshiva students are not getting a proper education filed a big lawsuit. Also of news this week, the NAACP announced a much stronger position against standardized testing. The NAACP has had a pretty strong position against charter schools and a a moratorium on new ones, but now they're also strengthening their position against standardized testing. And the other big news this week was Mark Janus, the subject of the Janus Supreme Court decision, announced that he's going to be working for a giant conservative think tank, the same think tank that bankrolled the lawsuit, and so he's no longer a public sector worker concerned about paying union dues now he is getting a big payday so it's it's pretty obvious that he was just a shill all along and congratulations to him on his new career (laughs) sitting in a chair doing nothing we do have a guest today today we have a call in from gle gle is running for lieutenant governor on the green party line this year she's a lifelong educator in new york city she's a special education teacher she's also very active in labor rights and labor issues she made news a couple years ago as one of the most outspoken teachers in the opt-out movement of fighting against standardized testing. In her efforts, she also ended up testifying in U.S. Senate hearings when they were creating the latest education law that was passed in 2015, testifying to the various harms of standardized testing. And so let's welcome uh, Gia to New York Update. Are you there, Gia? Hi, Jake. It's Gia. I'm here. So if folks want to look up Gia online, it's J-I-A, not G-I-A, Gia Lee. Gia's calling from New York City, where she's campaigning on the Green Party line. She's campaigning with Howie Hawkins, but she's in the lieutenant governor spot, which is a whole separate line, so you vote independently. And how's it going, Gia? Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's been a really great summer. I've gotten a chance I talk and meet with a lot of people about issues, uh, particularly around education and interestingly connected to um, the crisis of affordable housing for the lack thereof. So I want to say thank you for having me on. Okay. So I know that you have been involved in the battle against education reform. And by education reform, I don't mean education reform. That's one of these Orwellian terms. Education reform is kind of like corporatized education where there's a lot of big money and concentrated wealth that's trying to change public schools. And that includes not only Common Core, high-stakes testing, also charter schools and all different forms of private I guess it also includes, you know, the whole voucher effort, depending on the state. But have you been able to focus on your message, the issues that you've been working on for the last couple of years in your campaign? Yes, actually, uh, we just had a live stream podcast uh, last week on Thursday. It's still up on the Howie Hawkins uh, Facebook page, Mm -hmm. as well as my own. And there we talk a lot about kind of a focus on the specialized high schools. 
process in New York City and the New York City mayor's proposal to make changes because it disproportionately leaves out a great percentage of black and brown students who make up about 70% of the public school system here in the city. We got a chance to do a press conference on the steps of Tweed and do a live podcast. So those things are available if you'd like to check out, you know, in more detail what we've been saying all along about desegregation, about the policies, you know, and the tool of high-state standardized testing being used to further segregate and further create inequitable resources. Right. The standardized test exam has been a pretty controversial subject of late, and they're talking about mostly the inequity of outcomes because it ends up being something like 70% Asian, 20% white, and then very few black and brown kids that end up getting into these schools. And did you know, I just read something today, which I didn't know, that the this was actually Alan Singer writing in Daily yeah. Kos. The standardized test is written by Pearson, our right. old friend. Yeah. <laughs> this is a test that has not been reviewed for statistical validity or reliability in other words, it does not predict the kids that are most suited for these specialized high schools. It really just selects the kids who have had the most preparation for the standardized exam. Right. That's just another example of the way standardized testing has creeped in. But this is really only about 5,000 kids that it affects. Um, mm-hmm. this, you know, this is a very elite schools. And what's the state of play for you as you go around the state and talk about education as it pertains? to the standardized testing, the Common Core exams that come around every year, math and ELA, and the opt-out movement, which has maintained about 20% statewide and 50% on Long Island for the last couple of years, especially in light of the new announcement by the NAACP that we spoke about. Right. The NAACP has been a long time coming. Um, As you know, when I testified before the U.S. Health Senate Committee in 2015 on the reauthorization of the Elementary Secondary Education Act, and it was specifically on the topic of testing and accountability, I think we really have to emphasize, and Jake, you kind of said it in the, in the beginning, you know, with the word reform, that education reform term, you know, was coined in order to put into people's minds this idea that public schools were failing students, particularly in poor black and brown communities. However, this is a manufactured crisis as an excuse to create a standardized testing tool that could be used to measure, basically rank and sort our schools, public schools in New York State. And it's the same mechanism being used across the country and internationally, actually. I think part of it is because people have fed into this failing school rhetoric. And in actuality, the best way to help improve our school systems is to go into the school, into the communities and actually ask, like, what are the conditions that are making it very difficult for students to have adequate, equitable education since Brown versus Board of Ed? And what we find is that there's inequitable funding across the state, which is just one part of it. One of the key indicators, um, this is by the National Statistical Association, there They wrote an open letter to the Obama administration stating that the real indicators of outcomes for standardized tests is, you know, basically how well you prepared for the test, educational, you know, attainment by a parent, and your socioeconomic level. In-school factors account for maybe between 1% to 14%, but still it's being used as a tool to create a manufactured crisis as an 
refugees to label, schools are labeled as failing, and then parents in New York City are sent letters home saying your child is attending a failing school, and that makes people want to flee. And they see it because schools are not fully resourced, and it's just been a, an endless cycle of siphoning away funds and uh, the need of privatizing. I really see that in my teaching, too, and it's been that way ever since I started in 2007. The kids are forced to take a math and English language arts exam that they might not necessarily be on the grade level for that exam. and They they might need to back up a little bit, or in some cases, they need more advanced work, and it doesn't matter. You know, they say there's no excuses, so every kid has to take this test, and every September, I get new sixth graders, and they come to me an average of a year or two behind because I teach in a very low-income area in the Bronx. You know, it's ridiculous to give them this test. Maybe if we gave them a different test, it would have some value, some diagnostic value. But instead, the kid just sits there frustrated, pulling the hair out, and waits till the very end, fills out a bunch of circles, and they end up getting low scores, and people are just pointing fingers, totally barking up the wrong tree. And, right. uh, you know, they at the same time, they offer the, the solution all in one shot. It's uh, if you buy the corporate curriculum and spend money, the same company that creates a test. If you get your kid out of that school and get them into a, a charter school, they promise they'll get better test scores that way. And for other countries, this is what they're saying about Pearson getting losing their contract in New York and getting kicked out. They don't care one bit because they're expanding as fast as they possibly can in places like Kenya and all over Africa because they're doing what we went through, you know, maybe five or ten years ago. They're just standardizing these tests and they're selling it to parents like, hey, you want your kids to read and write at grade level or to do math at grade level? You know, all you got to do is plug into our corporate curriculum and what they call education reform. So so do you have a kind of like an official position for the campaign or an official platform on this? Well, if you take a look at the website, you can get more details, but definitely I feel that, and I think a lot of people who I know uh, across the state agree with me that we're asking the wrong question. Instead of saying, how can we get, and I'll use the specialized high schools as an example, how can we get our kids into the best schools? We should be asking, how can we make all of our schools places that we would want to send our children to? i tell you, a big red flag is the lack of transparency and accountability from the state government on down in terms of democratically made decisions about education across the state. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have you know Governor Cuomo and several Democrats and Republicans who've taken inordinate amounts of campaign contributions from education reformers, individuals and organizations alike, such as Families for Excellent, Student First, contributions that probably been the largest in terms of lobbyists in any of our time. So they have a vested interest in the business of education. I don't know if you noticed, Jake, but global education, the market has reached about $4.4 trillion Mm. in education, and it's growing. It's not, like I said, it's not just local. It's not just statewide or, you know, country, nationally, or Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually international. And this was in a Valerie Strauss article, and I'll just quote her. She said, some of the reasons for the expansion are decline in public funding of education around the world, leaving space for private concerns to move in. And 
that just goes to show you that you create a crisis, a company or several corporations, this industry is able to capitalize on the need, right, to create a market. Right. And it's right now the fastest growing industry of any space. And this was in The Economist. Last summer, the issue was entirely dedicated to the education industry, and the fastest growing in education is in artificial intelligence, if you can believe it, because of the ed tech and software. Yeah. Um, and these are the people who are funding Governor Cuomo's campaign. He's guaranteed them, you know, whatever, however much of our campaign for fiscal equity money that do our public school system and a lot of many of our elected officials. Yeah, you know, the real general idea of monetizing things that people need or or even more basically that they have a right to. I mean, in America, we every kid has a right to a public education and for them to figure out how to privatize those funding streams, it's basically like the Bain Capital model, uh, how to insert themselves as middlemen, or how to get parents, you know, to get like kind of like the end user to compete against each other, and, right. you know, and to upsell all kinds of products and services, whether it's test prep services, or books, or, or, um, or even selling the public schools big contracts for curriculum, like literally the textbooks that give you the answers that you're going to need when those tests come around. And it all goes also to pay for play for campaign right. contributions. You were mentioning that the education reform donors are some of Cuomo's biggest donors, and also the Republicans in the state legislature and charter school backers are some of the richest uh, hedge fund managers on Wall Street that have been pooling their money together in these packs. You mentioned a few, but there's also like uh, New York for a Balanced Albany and New York for Putting Students First and all these great sounding names, but they're hedge fund managers. So they're getting the Democrats and the Republicans together to ensure that they win no matter what happens. And I think they're the only remedy is for people to start being a lot more aware of who they're voting for and who they're funded by. Right. So, um, you know, really, you know, rejecting the candidates that are funded by the big packs and the big corporations. It's been big for a while, but it's getting bigger now as we see a couple of big name Democrats finally signing on to the promise to not accept corporate PAC money. We would definitely like to see a lot more. You know, we're at a place right now where it's a start. Right. It's a start. And I, I will say that while I appreciate, you know, I'm running on the Green Party line for a reason, and while I appreciate these very, you know, progressive Democratic candidates, mm -hmm. the Democratic Party machine is built to ensure, because there's so much money involved, that they don't get very far. And even if they do get elected, their hands are tied. So I believe that continued support of any elected official who believes in this, in these values of building a, the voices of the people, the working class across New York State, of uh, not just to get elected officials into you know, the people that we want, but to really build our local community stronger, be able to affect change in a bigger way. I think that's really going to be key. Right. So you mean people that are not beholden to any kind of big money interest and that can run a campaign on small donations from the people who hopefully are their constituents and not these, you know, not outsiders who have maybe just all kinds of other agendas. It sounds great. It's going to be hard to get there, but, you know, it seems like things have started to move in that direction. I mean, you take a big mainstream 
senator like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Senator Gillibrand, and they're vowing now not to take corporate PAC money, and I think they're aware that it, it could hurt them at the ballot box now if they continue to do that. You know, maybe that will spill over to other candidates. That isn't to say that they might not find other loopholes, other ways around it. They are welcome incremental changes, I think. They do really say, sorry, charter schools, you know, I'm not going to take your money, so don't even try. Even, you know, energy companies, oil and gas, you know, whatever the industry might be. There seems to be going in in the right direction. There's a big progressive movement out there. Actually, there's a lot of independents that are kind of mixing in there, too, and people that are just frustrated with the two big parties. Why don't you talk a little bit about the the lieutenant governor race as it's presented itself so far? Because I did hear that you were at an event a week or two ago and that some of the other candidates spoke at the same time. Yeah, huge shout-out to the Flatbush Senate Coalition uh, Candidates Forum and the people who've been fighting for a really long time. It's a community grassroots group in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. the Flatbush area. As you know, it's a belt of extreme gentrification. Mm-hmm. And and I did sit alongside you know, Jumani Williams, who's also running for lieutenant governor. Tish James mm-hmm. came a little late, and then Zephyr Teachout also showed up. Four of us were sitting on the panel together. I was the only non-Democrat sitting on the panel. And it was clear that two out of four of us vowed not to take any corporate donations. Mm-hmm. And the other two have. Right. So that would be and you and Zephyr, right? Yes. Yeah, Zephyr has vowed not to take any corporate con- contributions, particularly LLCs and real estate you know, hedge funds. Right. Uh, but we know that Tish James has taken millions. And Jamani Williams has also taken uh, money for real estate developers. Interesting. In the and I think it's time that we be very clear. And that's kind of my message, especially as a newcomer, running for lieutenant governor. I'm a teacher. I'm a public school, you know, educator and parent. You know, I'm a union organizer. I'm new to the electoral process. Mm-hmm. And... It was a really interesting experience to be in that space with many community members who've been facing harassment from from landlords without any kind of support in the in the broader scheme of things. In fact, landlords seem to get much more leeway and support from judges and from higher ups in our government right. uh, than the actual. Right. And when I was talking, I said, basically, we're the 99%. Everyone in that room is part of the 99%. The 1% controls the two-party system. And they control the rapid you know, real estate development happening in that area. And they will not allow anyone to get in their way. And I think it was by January, Governor Cuomo had already received $30 million in contributions from LLCs predominantly from real estate developers who have their eye on New York City, the large urban areas across the state. So if you're running for office and you're going to have these issues before you, it's really not a good sign that you're taking money from real estate developers because uh, the implication is that you'll somehow favor them. I was wondering if if charter schools came up in that forum because Jumani Williams has been hard to nail down on that. And I was wondering, did it come up and, and what was said? You know, Jamani did talk about his position on charter schools, but it was really short. Mm-hmm. And I think he, in that forum, said that he did not support the big charter chain. Okay. So that was a good thing. However, what I found, just as a public school activist, you know, like yourself, Jake, that often people who are in positions already say one thing in one place and they say another, mm-hmm. or do things 
you know, behind closed doors. And I'm not convinced. I'm really not convinced. And I know that, you know, Zephyr Teachout has spoken out against the big charter school change as well. And Tish James spoke about it very little. I can't even recall what she said. It was a two-part question when the charter school thing came up, so they some of the candidates focused more on the other part. Right. But uh, I'm adamantly opposed because I know it's part of privatization and displacement of public schools in connection with the gentrification that's happening. So, you know, I think we have to be really clear as working class people about where these interests are coming from, who they benefit in the long run, and what we need to do to make sure that our voices and our interests are heard if we want to have quality public schools for all. Yeah, I mean, early on I didn't know very much about Jumani Williams, and so I went digging online, and I actually went through all of these videos on city council hearings. You know, I finally found one hearing where they were taking a vote. You know, the vote was literally to open up the charter school cap. You had all of these Democrats that were voting against it, you know, like there's Daniel Drum and um, a couple others. And then when it came time for Jumane, he just abstained. And so that's why, you know, I was always curious. But I did ask his campaign manager, and she said that they are for charter schools, but Jumane has protested some of the co-locations when it was Success Academy. You know, it seemed like that was, you know, really nice but, you know, there, there's a much bigger picture out there. And I would make a distinction between the big charter chains and ma and pa charters that maybe only have one or two schools. Because those are the ones that are more likely to actually comply with the law, which says that charter schools are supposed to f- have special emphasis on kids that are at risk of academic failure. And so, you know, you might see a charter school opening up that only takes in foster kids, you know, kids that are in foster care. Or you might only take in kids that have uh, low test scores. And so, you know, those are really what charter schools were invented for, according to the original law. But it's become such a money thing because there is so much money out there and the charter school chains and the charter school advocates are looking for candidates to run because they need to sanitize their image. Um, A lot of these people like Daniel Loeb and Paulson and Petrie and Tudor Jones, these are like the biggest Wall Street sharks. These are like hedge fund guys that do hostile takeovers and all of this really mean-spirited, like money-grubbing stuff, you know, when they are on a board of a charter school, it makes them seem all of a sudden like, oh, they're a philanthropist. And so they use that to great effect. And uh, the whole idea of having something like DEFER, which is Democrats for Education Reform, you know, puts a shiny face on it and and a friendly face on it. Oh, these are Democrats. This is Democrats. And then you find out it's actually the same people that donate to Republicans. Hopefully when you had your chance to speak, you uh, went off on charter schools and unmasked the conspiracy? (laughs) Yes, yes. I will say that Democrats for educational reform were booed in Colorado recently by their convention. I saw that in their state convention. They actually... I think passed a resolution in the state committee that says, you know, that their money is not welcome and that they were going to be uh, suing to make them take Democrats out of their name, which also happened in California uh, some time ago. So that's great. Um, I know time is fleeting. So can you talk a little bit about your... 
your union activism because if people are listening, they might not know that you actually ran for UFT president against Mike Mulgrew. You led the opposition caucus, which is called Movement of Rank and File Educators. I'm a a proud member of MORE, uh, as well as you. In New York City, the really big teachers union is called the UFT, and it is so powerful that lawmakers really stand up and pay attention, you know, when the UFT takes a position or issues a press release. And so being the president of the UFT is a very important position. And you ran against Mike Mulgrew, uh, those elections come around every three years, you know, without, you know, pretty much any budget whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You ended up with about 20% of the vote. Most of that was all people that traditionally hadn't voted before, or a a, a huge increase in the the number of New York City teachers that hadn't participated in elections for a long time. You know, I think it's really difficult to kind of tell because historically voter turnout of active members has not been great for the United Federation of Teachers being as large as it is, about 140,000 members. But I know that there was an uptick in the number of people voting. Mm-hmm. And just, Jake, you know this, but you know retirees get a vote as well. And they comprise a good percentage of the voter turnout. Right. But in this particular election, we did get probably the most votes of any dissident caucus. Mm-hmm. And it was a sign, I think it put a, even a little bit of pressure on the leadership. We actually successfully acquired seven high school executive board seats. It was Our a- executive board has about a, just over 100 members. So seven doesn't seem like a lot, but that was a huge win for a small caucus. They, they definitely made an impression, brought uh, issues and folks from schools in where they've never been before. They've usually executive board meetings are pretty quiet, business as usual, but we shook things up this past, you know, the past couple of years. And I will say that to distinguish more, it's not just about taking power of the union. You know, it's my position, my personal position as someone who's running for lieutenant governor, but as being part of a vehicle to build rank and file power up and really build our union. Because right now, the way our union exists as a bureaucratic business union model in which there's almost a partnership between the union leadership and our bosses. Definitely a backroom thing happening. Yes, negotiations behind closed doors. And I just want to add in that even at every single level of government, our union has dealt primarily with um, the Democratic Party. If you go to the American Federation of Teachers Convention, Mm -hmm. um, which just happened a couple weeks ago, you'll find that Democratic candidates were invited to speak on the union floor. Right. Um, and this happens also at the UFT level. It's very difficult to engage in a true democratic process for discussion and debate, and we want to change that. Right. So you bring a lot more diverse views. The people might not know, but the UFT has an internal majority caucus called Unity that not only controls the UFT, but the statewide caucus, the the New York State United Teachers, we have an interesting setup in New York where something like 40% of the state's teachers are all in New York City. And so when they have the statewide convention, the UFT shows up in really, really big numbers, right? They, they make it a point to all show up all at the same time so they can all vote as a block. You know, even though they're only 40% of the teachers in the state, at the conventions, they're usually the, in the majority because every other district, right? New York City is one school district, all five boroughs. 
And then every other district is tiny compared to that. I mean, you have one school district. It's the biggest school district in the country and the world. And it has uh, something like 70,000 active teachers in it. And that just blows everybody out of the water. I mean, and uh, so there's a lot of influence, you know, on the state level. And there is a real tension there between, you know, New York City and upstate. And then also on the national level, because the the, uh, AFT wrapped up its convention, I think, yeah, like you said, only a week or two ago. And, you know, you heard the same complaints that the UFT was hogging up the, the spotlight and that they were exercising inordinate power. And this isn't to say, you know, everything that they're doing is wrong. I mean, I would probably agree with... I don't know, like, you know, 60 to 70 percent of what they're doing and saying, because we're all on the same side in the end. We want, Mm -hmm. you know, strong public schools and we, you know, we want our members to have, you know, security and and good pay packages and stuff. But there's that other stuff where the UFT has actually supported high stakes standardized testing, where they've allowed charter schools to get as far as they have. Right. You know, what would you say now in the post-Janus era that should be happening that we're not seeing inside the the teachers' unions? Oh, I mean, it's the same issue. I really appreciate, I do appreciate my union for recognizing, although albeit it was a little late when they started, but to really engage members in like a campaign of staying in our union and being you know, proud to be a union member. Yeah, I'm seeing those stickers everywhere. I'm seeing them on yeah. cars all over the place. Yeah, and that influence came largely from another large, you know, union, the AFL-CIO. There, there's a lot of their influence. And then some degree of training. What is direly missing, though, is this understanding that the union power does not lie at 52 Broadway, which is where the office is. Yeah, the headquarters. The union's power should lie at the school site. It's key indicator, the litmus test. You walk into any school to understand how empowered do the teachers feel, the youth members feel in the school, and it will tell you how strong the union is. I can tell you from experience and knowing members of more, the reason why more exists is that people do not feel empowered. They feel administrators have the ability to make even tenure teachers at will, making their lives very difficult. School closures, I'll tell you that in places like Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, there are now more charter schools than public schools, and that's what? happening in East New York. Is that yes, right? there's on average about two public schools that, on average, that close every summer. Um, it's very quiet, and in East New York, this is happening at a faster rate as well, and nothing is being done. In fact, the union leadership gives the same rationale that the papers and the city government says is under-enrollment, blaming under-enrollment failing to say that under-enrollment is happening because parents were sent letters that the school is failing instead of saying, organizing around the fact that it's broke on purpose, schools are under-resourced on purpose, using really flawed metrics, you know, the high-stakes standardized test. Right. And, you know, this just continues and proliferates. I was quoted once in a unity leaflet that was handed out at a delegate assembly saying, you know, when I said that opt-out or refusing and, you know, resisting high-stakes standardized testing was one of the only ways of fighting against a privatization. They quoted me, which I thought was great, but then it followed with, these are the reckless and feckless words of a member, and that was around the last election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, the... the problematic. 
and the people listening might not realize that when it comes to the high-stakes standardized tests, we're talking about the math and ELA exams, the common core tests, and then also there's uh, science exams, but only in fourth and eighth grade, that the charter schools are measured completely on those tests. And so they're different, you know, from public schools. Public schools are accountable to those tests, unfortunately, in in a number of ways, but charter schools are completely reliant on those test scores for their renewals with their charter school authorizers. And, and so they score their they score their own tests too. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Well that right. And so and, and that's pretty shady. But you know, besides just scoring their own tests, from day one of the school year until testing day, that's all they concentrate on. I mean they right. tell these kids, they psych them up and then they also just teach to the test. I mean, if something right. isn't likely to be on the standardized test, you're not going to get it. They were actually faulted for that because they were neglecting other things like art and sports. And so they kind of had to bring those things back as a way to lure people into the schools. You know, that once the people get into the schools, it is really just, you know, nonstop test prep. And you guys might have heard of the kids wetting their pants and the, you know, teachers ripping up their papers, you know, all of the stress that's put on kids from a very young age, you know, you're a very young kid when you're in third grade. You know, the charter schools do use that measure, which for public schools has been placed in a moratorium for the last four years. The public schools are not allowed to look at the Common Core test results and hold students accountable or teachers accountable based on those scores. And so basically the the state education officials said, you know, we're going to suspend that whole thing as we look into it. But the charter schools have been using it the whole time. Right. So, I mean, and there's plenty wrong with that. We're still waiting to find out if the Board of Regents up in Albany is actually going to do a scientific review There was one promised in September of last year, so it's going to be a year pretty soon that it's overdue, but we're not seeing it. The whole battle over teacher evaluations, it has been something that the union has taken on, the state union has taken on very strongly, especially after they were kind of successful when they were fighting the CONCON, and they kind of mobilized their troops in a way we haven't seen in a long time. As a real, you know, leader in the organized labor movement, Gia, I would really applaud what you've done, and I would, you know, hope that you continue. Would you know, maybe when elections roll around again, you might be interested, or there's that's something that uh, it's it's definitely not on your mind. We'll see. I mean, I'm part of a caucus, and we are very deliberate in you know whatever kind of decisions that we make together. So, I mean, anything is possible, mm-hmm. but I think our primary focus has been on developing organizational capacity with the schools to help each other develop that empowerment at school site level and build it up. It's really helpful when you see the difference between a school that has a very active union chapter versus a school where they just do the minimum or sometimes they don't do very much at all, hold the administrator's feet to the fire. Right. And um, it usually ends up being a better environment, a healthier environment for the students and the teachers. Right. It's, uh, it's a ground-up thing. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just expand that from school to school to school all over the city and all over the state? Right. Stand solidarity. Right. My concern is that when you're running in a third party, mm-hmm. is that the media really doesn't give you a fair shake. 
Have you uh, encountered this where the big networks and the big newspapers are really not even giving you the, the, the time of day because you're a third party? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I will point out that, you know, in the last election, it was Howie Hawkins and front of ours, Brian Jones ran for lieutenant governor, and they received about 5% of the vote, which did push on the candidate. And it was actually more votes than the Working Families Party. Really? Um, yeah. And it did push. Just having that, it's important that the huge importance of the third-party vote is what kind of pushes established Democrats or Republicans to really push for more progressive, you know, issues and to take on things that they may not do that they know that there's a base that's watching them. Right. So I do, I want to, you know, emphasize the need to really build an independent, corporate-free, people-power third party. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take time. I totally understand that, but things are happening. And so this is a pivotal time to kind of help make that shift. And can you tell me um, the Green Party does not cross indoors? Correct. Right. Right. So if so, if you're running green, you you're only running green, and it's not like you can run as a Democrat and a green. Why is that? I'm, I don't really understand it because it seems as though some parties will endorse a popular candidate that's running on a on a major party line just to kind of signal the voters' preference. You know, like they're voting for the same person, but they'd rather vote. For, for on the working families line or, or or something like that. And so it kind of, do you know what the underlying philosophy is for the Greens? It, that's a really good question. I think I know a little bit, probably not enough to, to give a really concrete answer, but I will say this, mm-hmm. that I think there's been a history possibly of people doing that and you can see what happens with the Working Families Party and the Democratic Party, right? Oh, yeah. There's, there's... a lot of political maneuvering. Yeah. It's ugly. It really shows and it is us, you know, and a lack of alliances instead of principles. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where the Green Party is very firm in its principles and being untethered in their rules that no Green Party candidate will ever take corporate money. It's written into the rules. Right. I think the same kind of principles go towards any kind of political maneuvering that might, I don't know what kind of situations could arise but where a person flip-flops and gains, you know, promises one party, one thing, and yeah. all that stuff. Well, so, we're, we're seeing that I now. I mean, between yeah. the uh, the WFP, I mean, there's articles that yeah. just came out today that are really worried. If Cynthia Nixon loses, is she going to play spoiler? And, you know, maybe I can get you to comment on what's going on in the Bronx and Queens where uh, Joe Crowley, a longtime mm. part of the Democratic machine in Queens, was defeated by somebody that very young and came out of nowhere, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Any observations about that race and what's going on now that Joe Crowley seems to refuse to get off the WFP line? I think it's it's a matter of bullying. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the Working Families Party is being used as a bully pulpit. Right, I mean, the the, the party is begging him to vacate the uh, position so that they can run Alexandria Cortez. Right. And he won't do it. He won't do it. He's refusing. And I think that that kind of thing should not be allowed. Right. It's and all... therein lies the problem, right? Right. So I guess it makes sense. The Green Party, you know, some people might, you know, look at the you know, pros and cons, but that it's certainly something that they don't have to deal with. Right. And, you know, there's all kinds of rumors flying around about what will happen if, when, Cynthia Nixon loses the primary. But one rumor, I don't know where this came from, 
um, that she would run for an assembly position. Oh, yeah, no, I saw that today. To somebody else. Mm-hmm. And does that other person who was planning on running, you know, how do they feel about it? It's just a lot of political maneuvering. It has to do with power, you know, posturing that I think the Green Party wants no part of. Right. I understand that it can get very sticky. And what right. you're talking about, I saw today, is that yeah. where Cynthia Nixon lives in the city, her assembly member is Deborah Glick. And Deborah right. Glick was in the papers today saying that the WFP never called her, but that she mm. found out that if uh, Cynthia loses, that they were going to put her on the <laughs> assembly position, which just like for WFP which is, is is terrible for Deborah Glick because she right. could very well lose and then Cynthia Nixon win something that she probably doesn't even want, you know? Does right, she want right. to go up and just be the most famous assembly member in history? Yeah, but it's really strange. And what is it really about when within the Democratic Party these things are being negotiated? Right. For, to what end and to what purpose? So I would say that overall the WFP and other third parties are a healthy thing to to keep these Democrats honest and to realize that if they slip up, you know, somebody can come out and really take them on, whether it's, you know, a competitive election and, and you know, and they really go for the win, or if it's just something that they just want to hammer an issue to try to get them to do the right thing. You know, and make them really pay a price because, you know, they might not have the the war chest or the money to be able to get all the advertising and postcards and all that. But still, you can sometimes do a lot with a little and, you know, get issues out there that might have not been spoken about otherwise. The last thing I wanted to ask you is how is it appearing with Howie Hawkins in these events? Um, I heard him on the radio a couple weeks ago, and he had a very interesting way of spelling out um, what it would actually look like if New York State did restore the millionaire's tax. And, you know, he was really good with, like, kind of the facts and figures and explaining it wouldn't be the be-all, end-all, but, you know, that it would bring in something like $15 billion every year, you know, of revenue that's not there now. And that this kind of a move would barely even affect the lifestyles of some of these, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires. And so um, I found him to be, you know, really well informed. Um, so what's your impressions um, as his running mate? I mean, actually, if you look across the red states where those big strikes happen, the teacher strike, mm-hmm. they've all kind of called upon the same initiative to have a millionaire billionaire tax that would help to bring in the needed revenue, all it is is asking for this, for people to pay their fair share. Yeah. Instead of pay to play, which has it has created huge amounts of inequity. In a study done not too long ago, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity cited that New York State has some of the greatest inequality. That's right. And it probably, you know, if the 1% earns 45 times more than the bottom 99% in New York. And when they you know, narrowed it down to the counties with the worst. We had New York City and Westchester. Huh. So in Manhattan alone, the average income of the 1% is 116 times greater than the 99%. <laughs> and well, it's, that's Wall And Street. it's actually growing. This was in 2016, two years ago. Yeah. So you have to put into place a system that actually makes it more equitable and fair is nothing new. I mean, there are countries around the globe really, really successful countries in terms of uh, quality of life that institute millionaire billionaire taxes. I believe on NPR there was once a German 
millionaire billionaire who said, who paid something like 40% taxes, and he was like, oh, I want to pay these taxes. Why? Because I don't want to live in a poor country. Right. I don't want to live in a poor country. I want to live where people are, are doing well. And there's this understanding that we all benefit, including the millionaires and billionaires of New York State, from public service, from public services, the roads, the bridges, everything. Right, infrastructure. Um, the environment. Yeah, and uh, and educated workers, a a, a really well educated workforce, right? right, Really pushes the country's competitiveness. Yeah, in fact, the notion that millionaires and billionaires earn that money is ridiculous. If it were not for working class people, they would not be where they are. It's only because they have helped pay for legislation that allows them to keep more of their wealth. Yeah, Uh, and it you know, and all the while keeping things like benefits and pay quality of life and things for the working people who actually work for them less because they have less power, right? Right. So how he's talking about it is not anything real, and I really um, appreciate the plan that he has. It's true. You know, it, there's just glaring inequality, and, and we're letting it happen. There's plenty of examples across Europe and Scandinavia where they just kind of put a little bit more of a limit. And I mean, it's not like you can't have, you know, you can't be rich and be a millionaire and buy your Rolls Royces and your yachts. It's just that do you need to have 20 generations of millionaires? You know, at what point do you get where you'll never be able to spend that money? And, uh, you know, I think we're seeing right now. I think it's uh, Jeff Bezos. They said he's knocking on a hundred billion dollars, the richest man in history. That's a big milestone. Bill Gates, I think the highest he ever got was like eighty billion. And so, all that money is coming out of the circulating economy, and it means right. that somebody else is just, you know, not going to be having those dollars flow through their hands anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, it was really nice of you to call in, Gia. Thank you, Jake, Maybe we can do it again you. as it gets closer sure. to the elections. You don't have any primaries, right? So you're just you're just going up until no, the November elections, right? That's right. And I'd be happy to. Right. And, uh, you, you know, I'm sure things will get much more exciting as the drum beats get louder and louder. And, yeah. you know, and then and there's more polling and there's more stuff going on. Really, the Green Party, if you got 5% in the last election or in the last cycle, that really could be a powerful voting block right there. Right. Right. A very consequential voting block. So um, we'll let you go. Thanks so much for calling in. And if anybody okay. wants to... Uh, catch you online you could uh, google gia lee that's gia with a j g j i a lee and they could catch you on the green party's website right that's right great all right well we'll speak to you soon thanks jake all right take care Gia. bye-bye well folks there you have it the candidate for lieutenant governor on the green party line i was there at one of their launch meetings but i didn't realize that the green party got that much of the vote in the last cycle that's pretty interesting gia told me that when she first got approached that she really wanted to get a lot of these issues that she's been working on out there more get them out more in the campaigns and get more people speaking about them and, you know, understanding that there are alternatives. So uh, I really applaud her for that. I'm not revealing any secrets here to say that the Green Party candidate is is always a long shot. But the elections in France, where Emmanuel Macron was elected, showed that you can come out of nowhere and have a third party and just take over 
Emmanuel Macron was elected from a third party, and the people running down the ticket from him for the French parliament were also running on the same third party. And they took over a majority, you know, and they wiped away the other two established parties all in one cycle, just like that. And so it could happen here. You know, you really need the right combination of things going on. You know, it really depends on who the other candidates are, you know, what the big issues are and, you know, money that's at play. I really think here in the U.S. and in New York State that we're really too dependent on the corporate mainstream media for our news and information. If these other candidates were out there and had more of a chance, there would be a lot more to their campaigns and there would be a lot more support for them. And, you know, it would be a lot more representational. They would be able to represent constituencies just like they do in some other places where they have parliamentary elections and there's more representational or proportional voting for the people that actually do the the lawmaking. So there was a couple of other interesting things that we uh, spoke about in the beginning, but we will catch you guys up next time and hopefully we'll have another exciting guest. But uh, there's a lot of things shaping up and you know we definitely have our eye on that yeshiva issue. We definitely have our eye on the education battles that are taking place now. There's a big vote coming up in September where the Board of Regents is going to make some very consequential decisions regarding the rights of parents to opt out of the standardized test. And of course, the battle for charter schools and, and school privatization rages on endlessly. So you can catch the archives on our website. Just go to newyorkupdate.org. That's nyupdate.org. You can catch us on Twitter at UpdateNY. There's a lot of ways to reach us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, want to be a guest on the show, you hate the show, you love the show, feel free to let it all out. And uh, thanks again to Richard Quinn from Rock and World Radio, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. It's not just radio, it's Rock and World Radio. Rockland, worldradio.com.